Welcome into another edition of New Track Record. Caleb Hatch and Justin Kinney with you. And this week, we recap the season opening Firestone Grand Prix of St. Petersburg, presented by RP Funding, NTT IndyCar Series in all caps. Hello, Justin. Hello, Caleb. How are you? Uh, well, battling a cold, but otherwise doing okay. And uh, Scott McLaughlin. I mean, let's just start out. I mean, what a performance from leading practice Saturday morning. You, you kind of thought there was something there. And then goes out and beats Will Power to win the pole, which I don't think any of us expected to happen. And then goes out and runs a clean race, and the strategy works out. Picks up his first win. Now, I know we both said we expected him to win a race this year. I don't think we anticipated it would happen this past weekend. And if you were in the betting betting uh, lines and looked at him to, to start the weekend at plus, I think it was plus 3,600, you could have got Scott McLaughlin when the, when the uh, lines initially came out. And I think it was what, practice two that he went P1? And that was kind of the first indicator because he was the first guy to lay down a sub one minute lap, I think. And um, that kind of opened the eyes uh, to McLaughlin for the weekend. And he just brought it home, got the pole, stayed out of trouble over the course of the race. You know, there weren't any untimely yellows that would have put um, some other strategies in play. And um, McLaughlin brought it home. And, and, And even, you know, a challenge from Alex Pillow in the closing laps that kind of made it a little exciting there at the end. But McLaughlin does uh, what he's supposed to do with Team Penske, and that is win. And after a year of of learning, he's really hitting the ground running here in 2022. Yeah, and, and third time racing at St. Pete, and I think that was really the key, that he had that third time at a track, the familiarity, and put together a great result. And for Penske, I don't think any of us expected that to be the guy to get it done. I mean, out-qualify both your teammates. Newgarden does really well at St. Pete. Will Power, I saw a stat, I think, from Trackside Online, is qualified in the, the Fast 6, 14 of his 15 appearances at St. Pete. So, I mean, it's just wild. Pretty crazy. And and what a way to start the year off. You know, A, a Team Penske driver wins, maybe not the one we expected, but... All to all in all, um, a pretty good start to the 2022 season. And I know we're going to, you know, kind of break it down here with our three things. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, obviously the first three things I think for both of us is just Scott McLaughlin, right? I mean, his performance over the weekend, how could it not be? And I I think a thing that, that stuck out was this was a guy who quite honestly, I don't, I don't think people thought much of going into the season. I, I mean, I don't think people were starting to wonder how was he here and you know you know he had all that success in supercars and and was so good in supercars but i think the takeaway for me is yes it was an adjustment period but scott mclaughlin has figured it out and now that he's won a race i don't think this is a one and done thing i mean i think this is a guy who's going to be competitive all season for uh scoring wins and and getting points and you know running for the championship Looking back, it's something that we should have assumed was going to happen in 2022 because Team Penske, they don't just hire drivers to hire drivers and, you know, they don't hire rookie drivers to just to hire drivers. And, you know, we should have known in 2022 that Alex or Scott McLaughlin was going to break out because he's with Team Penske year two, as you mentioned, third time at St. Pete, uh, really has 
you know, won everywhere he's been, including supercars, was dominant there. And, you know, finally finding his groove now uh, with Team Penske, I say finally, you know, after just a year. But, you know, we don't, you don't have a lot of a learning curve at Team Penske. You're expected to come in and contribute. And McLaughlin, you know, knew that he had to start putting up some performances here this year. And, you know, how his reaction was in victory lane, you know, it was great, you know, well, first he falls, uh, and, and made it look uh, made it look okay. I mean, he 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 uh, he cleaned it up a little bit. Didn't look completely out of it, but um, you know, you could see the emotion, uh, both you know, visually exhausted and you know, mentally uh, strapped. But you know, calling his you know, skyping his parents back in in Australia, like it was it was huge for for Scott McLaughlin, huge for Team Penske, and I think huge for the series. Here we go now, another guy that's a race winner that is going to factor in going forward and brings a sizable fan base, you know, with sure. Australia and New Zealand, not that they don't have competitive drivers from those two countries, but I mean, he's well known in those countries. And then you layer that in with willpower, Scott Dixon. I mean, maybe we could get a race down there again. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but yeah, Scott McLaughlin, obviously his performance. And I just think how underrated he was going into it. I, I mean, I think that's my first takeaway. What about you? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, my my takeaway is Alex Pillow finishes second, pushes for the race win at the end, and for anybody who thought, okay, after winning a championship, let's see where Pillow is in 2022. Let's see if he can pick up where he left off. Well, he has, and I, I I'm not yet ready to say he's the number one driver at Chip Ganassi Racing, and I don't think Ganassi will ever come out and say that, but I think in terms of performance, it's starting to lean that way for me. And I mean, and that's absolutely impressive, and it's almost not taking away from Scott Dixon. It's more what Alex Pelot is doing. But we, how, how, many, how many years did we talk about it, Caleb, and said, man, Chip Ganassi Racing at some point has to find an heir apparent to Scott Dixon and I think they have found that in Alex Pillow and his performance to start the year just reinforced my opinion of that. Yeah, I mean, we were waiting after Dario had to retire in 2013 toward the end of that season uh, with injuries suffering that Houston crash. And then it was shuffling guys in and out, right? I mean, Tony Kanaan came over and he won a race, but was, you know, by that point, not a consistent battling for the championship contender. Um, man, I'm trying to think of They tried Ed Jones. Felix Rosenquist, we thought would be the guy. I mean, he he's able to win a race, but Alex Blow has come in as has been that guy, like you said, taking it to another level. And also the weekend he had, how it started out with that brutal crash, basically head on into yeah, the wall. That was brutal. And for him to bounce back and find a way to finish second after you know qualifying tenth, which is fine. I mean, it's not great. It's not ideal, especially for a street circuit where things can can happen and get crazy. But I mean, for him to bounce back after the how his weekend started and how qualifying went and to finish second, I mean, that's that's very impressive performance. Yeah, remember, remember, just a, a short time ago, we couldn't even figure out how to pronounce his last name, <laughs> and now look at him. Yeah, champion, and already off to a strong start in year number two with Chip Ganassi Racing. Definitely. All right, what's your second point? Second takeaway, I mean, this race, just overall, as far as the buzz and 
the attendance, I mean, everything about it seemed so big that it almost, there are people debating on Twitter, I think Tony DeZeno, one of those, like, has St. Pete surpassed Long Beach in terms of buzz? And I don't know if I'd go that far, but the buzz that this race had, TV ratings, you know, separate from all this, as far as people being at the track. Right. Um, I mean, it's a huge boost. Didn't they have something like an in- increase of like 50%? Yeah, 49% from what, 2019, which yeah. is the last time they were able to have, you know, quote unquote, full crowd. So what they've done, and obviously having Grosjean, having Jimmy Johnson, Scott McLaughlin, I mean, that's helped, but it, it, it seems like IndyCar, not that we didn't think this going into the season, but it seems like IndyCar has turned a corner and we're actually seeing those results play out in real time. We are, and I am going to factor in TV ratings because we'll get to them here in a bit, but you you all encompass the weekend from the crowd to the excitement to the TV rating, and I think St. Petersburg, the event, is is helped out tremendously by the fact that it is mostly, most of the time, the season opening race. So the buzz of getting a new season started actual, absolutely helps St. Petersburg's event. I think if you, if you swapped them and Long Beach was the was the start of the season that would add more buzz to long beach, you know, even more buzz. So I think long St. Petersburg has helped. I think it's, you know, maybe around that region, St. Pete and Tampa, it's kind of the kickoff to, you know, spring. And I know it's different down there because it's never winter, <laughs> 80 degrees. I do feel like maybe it's, it's the kickoff of, you know, touristy season kind of stuff, you know, and all that down there. So uh, definitely and, and moving up the race a couple weeks too. Sure. I, I mean, they drew a bigger crowd, so you're not getting some of the spring break crowd that you would have gotten before. And I thought when they moved it up, I was like, okay, it's cool that IndyCar is starting the week after the Daytona 500, but how's that going to impact the crowd? Well, obviously, <laughs> not not an impact <laughs> in a negative way. Um, you know, they estimated 143 or 140,000 over three days in 2019, crowd up 49% from that. I'd be fascinated. Two hundred thousand, which we all know those numbers. Yeah, that seems to... rounded up to the nearest hundred thousand. But I, you know, <laughs> I'd be interested to know. And and I use my parents as an example. They just came back um, this week, in fact, from Florida, snowbirds, and and moving the race up into late February. I mean, does that allow them to tap into that market potentially with people down there? Very well, could be because I, I would think a lot of those people don't come back. Until, you know, sometime in March, maybe even end of March. And that could add to the crowd a little bit. Every little bit helps. And, you know, we're talking premier events on the schedule in IndyCar year in and year out. I mean, are are you willing, when we talk about the top three races, and we know Indy is up there at Long Beach, is St. Pete third? I mean, you could argue Road America. You could argue Mid-Ohio. I don't think either one have the cachet that St. Pete does right now in terms of turnout, in terms yeah. of energy and excitement. And, you know, I know it's completely different with a street race as opposed to a road course race, but I don't know. I just feel like the energy and the excitement, the buzz, the growth of that event, I, I'd say it's a top three event right now on the IndyCar schedule. Until we race at Road American <laughs> and see and see if they surpass expectations for previous years. That would be great. Let's, let's hopefully St. Pete set the tone. Or the season. For sure. All right. What's your second takeaway? You know, I'm going to talk about Dalton Kellett. Yes. 
and the result wasn't there, finishing 25th due to a mechanical, but he qualifies 14th. He was running in the mix close to the top 10, I think, you know, high teens, 11, 12, 13, that range for most of the race before he had the mechanical. But what can you say about, you know, we dog him at every opportunity, or at least I do. So I think we do need to give some credit to AJ Foyt Racing because Kellett was competitive before going out. And I think that Kirkwood was competitive before going out. And I think we kind of assumed, okay, Kyle Kirkwood will be that leader for AJ Foyt Racing. He's got the most talent. But, you know, Dalton Kellett showed out and showed very well, showed good pace and competency. And, you know, I think Tatiana Calderon stayed out of trouble, um, you know, learned, you know, out-qualified Jimmy Johnson to start the race. Uh, So, you know, overall, I thought it was a lot to like out of AJ Foyt racing over the first weekend of the season, and in particular, Dalton Kellett. Yeah, and, and Kellett said he really worked on his qualifying pace, and, you know, Kirkwood had Bourdais in his stand, and then Kellett had someone else there with him. I can't recall who it was. Was it Seb, or was he with Kirkwood? Seb was with Kirkwood, but there yeah. was someone else that Kellett was either working with or, you know, to, to work on qualifying pace and, and performance. And, I, I mean, he outqualified Pato Award. Um, right. He, he outqualified Elio Castro Neves. I mean, outqualified um, Joseph Newgarden. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. And, you know, you mentioned Tatiana Calderon. I, yes, she finished what? 24th. Yeah. But what she was able to do just keeping the car clean all weekend to me, that's impressive because yeah. making your debut on a street circuit when this is your, your first you know, race weekend in IndyCar, that's really, really tough. And overall with Foyt and then Kirkwood, I mean, he was running up there and then got screwed on the, the three-stop strategy not working out. Um, but he had pace. I mean, you look just to qualifying when you look at... Um, Fast 12 Kellett for was, Kirkwood. Yeah, Kellett was 14th. Kirkwood was 12th, started 12th. So that's two Foyt cars in the top 14 to start the race. Uh, I, that's that's a pretty impressive, and and Kellett would have been up there in the results if he didn't have that mechanical. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, this is a, a, a new leaf, and if this Foyt team will have pace on the oval, I mean, let's not forget in his last oval outing with Kellett, what is he like twelfth at Gateway? And I get there's a ton of attrition, but right. that also means you're avoiding the attrition, yeah, right? <laughs> you are or not the cause of the attrition Correct. in those cases too on oval. So you know, I think if if Foyt if if they can take this effort and consistently do this, a couple cars, top 15, both in qualifying and finishes, I mean, that's absolute progress for Foyt, and we'll see if it continues. Uh, I guess my third takeaway would be McLaren. You know, I could have I could have brought up Meyer Shank here, but I'm going to go with McLaren, and qualifying pace, not very good. Award started 16th, Rosenquist 21st, award finishes 12th, Rosenquist 17th, they just look completely lost. And it seems like they have weekends where they roll off the truck, they're fast, and then weekends where their middle of the pack are worse. But it doesn't feel like there's any kind of adjustment. You know, there's no improvement Improvement, on those weekends. And I think it was just very disappointing to see, especially, I mean, it's not like they weren't competitive on some of the street circuits last year. Pato Award won one of the Detroit races. So it just... Very surprising by their lack of pace and ability to race toward the front outside of Pato Award's awesome start of the race. I mean, they weren't really touching the top 10. 
Really a non-factor. And you, you look at teams able to adjust on the fly. Chip Ganassi Racing in practice one was all over the place. And then they're able to get it together by the time Sunday came around. So that's a team that's able to get off the truck and struggle and then find its way over the course of two days. And McLaren wasn't able to do that. So, you know, they got to figure that out because, uh, you know, unfortunately a lot of, of event weekends – you're not going to have very much time on track and, and you know what two 45 minute practices at St. Pete and a warm up. That's all you get. Uh, you better have things dialed in pretty quick and McLaren wasn't able to do that. So these are the weekends that um, you know, you need to find consistent consistency with if you want to be a factor late in the season for a title. Yeah. And that just was not there. And I think that was very surprising that they were never really a factor all weekend. All right, third takeaway. For My you. third takeaway. Let's talk the championship. No, I'm just kidding. We're not <laughs> talking the championship. Um, the only championship we'll talk about is our fantasy IndyCar race, which we'll get to later. Those are the only championship standings we'll talk about here on the podcast through May. But uh, let's talk the blue flag rule because, uh, you know, once again, Will Powers, and I think it was it wasn't typical Will Power complaining but he brought it up and, you know, he, he, you know, says, you know, everybody wants it. Why don't we have it? I, I just, I, I don't see, I understand when you have a car multiple laps down, but when you have a car trying to stay in a lead lap, I don't care when it is during the course of the race, they have every intent, you know, and, and that they can try to keep their lap. And, you know, we, this is a fascinating thing, Caleb, because we always talk about, over the course of the season, having another teammate up there to battle with you and help you, right, in a race for a championship. But maybe we need to talk about having that teammate that's toward the back that in the clutch moments of a race is able to hold off your opponents a little bit or make it difficult for your team or for your um, you know, your teammates' uh, challengers to get past you. That may be a better better situation than having a driver uh, up, up front with you, so... That's kind of uh, my take on it. Uh, you know, I had no issue with Jimmy Johnson holding people up. I mean, he was still racing, you know, to say in the lead lap, same with Devlin DeFrancesco, right? So, yeah, I, I guess I didn't have any issues with how it played out at the end. Yeah, it made it a little bit more exciting, but I never really felt like McLaughlin was truly under threat either. Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree. I mean, everybody, once again, I, I felt like maybe the um, the excitement from the booth late in the race was a little bit contrived. I, I mean, I had a hard time thinking Alex Pillow was going to find a way to to pass Scott McLaughlin, even if he was able to get up there. And so, you know, I, I kind of felt like, you know, it was trying to add drama at the end of the race that maybe wasn't there. I mean, it was, it was exciting, but maybe not as exciting as they let it off to be. But um, yeah, the blue, the blue flag thing, it, it just doesn't bother me. And until it really, it really rears its ugly head if you're not allowing, you know, or a car getting out of the way that's three, four, five laps down. But I see that at most opportunities. And you know what? If you have a teammate, that's what teammates are for, even if they're, you know, in the back, let alone the front. Yeah. All right. So those are our three things. We'll get to some other notes. Uh, in fact, one thing that sticks out that I could have could have picked. How about uh, Ray Hall, their team, all three drivers finishing in the top 13, especially after how. Things went with Jack Harvey with his crash. He finishes 13th. Lungard in his debut, 11th. Graham Rahal finishing in 7th. 
So, yeah, they didn't qualify great, but I think this is a step, and we'll we'll see how they perform at Texas here in a couple weeks, but I, I think it's a step forward, which is what you'd want as opposed to a step backward, which is where it seemed to go uh, for them, you know, at times over the past couple years. So, good weekend for them. Meanwhile, Meyer Shank struggled. Kasher Nevis finishing in 14th. Paginote after starting the fast six down in 15th. And again, a lot of this just comes down to bad two, strategy. Strategy, <laughs> yeah. Two stop versus three stop. The two stop was clearly the preferred method as Scott Dixon was the first in the three stoppers as far as the highest finishing car. And he finished eighth. So I think that kind of says it all. Well, I mean, unfortunately, those three stoppers needed more caution. And it sounds weird because the, the two stoppers really needed you know, caution to, to extend, but having to pit, you know, at least twice under green was not ideal. And in the end, that's kind of what cost them the race. All right. Let's talk TV ratings. Yeah. Let's. Speaking of notes on, on this one, um, 1.429 million viewers across NBC and streaming platforms. So Peacock, I think NBC sports.com. There might've been like one other streaming platform. Um, so it's the most watched season opener for IndyCar since 2011, also at St. Pete. That got 1.840 million viewers on ABC, and it, the highest rated non-Indy 500 and most viewed on NBC ever. Um, so pretty good increase, 53% audience increase on last year's season opener, which was Barber in April. That had 932,000 viewers. 15% jump on last year's St. Pete race, 1.246 million. But again, last year, St. Pete was what, the second to last race? or Next to last? No, I'm getting that mixed up. St. Pete was like third last year. (laughs) Why can I not recall what it was last year? Because Long Beach was the, the finale last year, right? Correct. So... St. Pete was race number two. So they just they moved there it back. Go. Race two. All right. So still up from that. And, you know, f- for reference, the previous high for most watched non-500 mid-Ohio last year, 1.303 million viewers. That was on July 4th weekend. So this is really good. 24,000 fans watched on uh, either Peacock, NBCSports.com, or NBC Sports app. Largest streaming audience for non-500 race in IndyCar history as well. I mean, that's to be expected, I yeah, would say. Yeah, because I think they're becoming... Have technology now to better judge those numbers. Yes. So, so all overall, positives. Yeah, I had to ask you. I was like, is this good or bad? When when uh, Adam Stern initially posted it on Twitter, and you had to break it down for me. So, a tremendous start to the season. But, you know, this is what we expect. This is what IndyCar should be getting on network, right? So this is the benefit from having all these races on network. I know already people are complaining about lack of a post-race show. And in a perfect world, there would be a 10, 15-minute uh, show on Peacock. That happens all the time on ESPN, right? Go to ESPN Plus yeah. to, to watch post-game or whatever. Uh, NBC does it, you know, with, with Sunday Night Football, stuff like that. So it should be doable to do that, but this is what... With the trade-off when you get put on network is you have very, very strict times you need to get out. So 
Uh, I, I didn't have a problem with it, and, and I quite honestly, majority of post races, I don't even watch. I will keep it on in the background, but usually I start doing other stuff. And uh, for clarity, a .89 was the rating. I mean, yes, I get it. People want a 1.0 or above, but what's more important is the viewers. Yeah. And the viewership was up. As long as you're getting over a million viewers, and for IndyCar, I mean, the target number now seems to be 1.2 million. I mean, before, you were happy to hit a million. Right. And now you're getting 1.2 million. Well, they used to say that that million viewer mark was like the magic mark for sponsors, yes. right? They at least want to see a million. Correct. Right? And now IndyCar is is getting close, like you said, averaging you know 1.2, 1.3. So you're surpassing that magic number that just a couple years ago we were clamoring for. Yeah. So, I mean, that's that's really important. And then uh, Adam Stern posted the top 10 markets. No surprise, Indianapolis, number one, a 2.89. Um, Tampa, St. Petersburg, 2.12. Knoxville, Tennessee, that's surprising, 1.89 in third. Albuquerque, Santa Fe, 1.85 in fourth. Norfolk, 1.81. Dayton, Ohio, 1.80. Columbus, Ohio, 1.79. Cincinnati, 1.58. Huh, notice the trend there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I have the race at Mid-Ohio. That's helped. Uh, yeah. Cleveland, could we bring it back? <laughs> well, Norfolk, I mean, looking at you, Richmond. Yeah, true. True, for sure. Greenville Spartanburg, which is the one it's that's always, hilarious. Yeah, in it's the top always 10. on there. <laughs> 1.46 in yep. ninth. Kansas City, 1.38 in 10th. But... Yeah, I mean, you look at the the makeup. Obviously, Indianapolis and Tampa St. Pete are going to be up there, but Knoxville, Tennessee, a bit of a surprise. Um, you have three Ohio cities, not a surprise, and then Greenville, Spartanburg always does well. Which I, yeah. I don't, I don't know why. There's clearly like a couple IndyCar fans. Who yeah, have Nielsen they, boxes. they all have the Nielsen boxes, <laughs> right? So. What's, um, you know, I know people are going to be like, you know, some people will grumble, well, now here we're off for three weeks, but that, you know, it's just the nature of the beast, right? Yes. And I would say, yes, you're off for three weeks, but you're not going to draw in casual viewers, you know, after this weekend anyway, because the NCAA tournament. tournament. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have conference tournaments, then the NCAA tournament, and I get it, IndyCar will race on that weekend, but yeah. it'll be on the Sunday. In the it, afternoon slot, right. so in a perfect that's a little world, more helpful. Yeah, in a perfect world, it'd be every other week, right? I, I'm sorry, I I have too busy a life to watch week after week after week. That grind through May June is difficult for me to power through uh, to watch the races, and let alone you know we're you know let alone Cup having 36 races or whatever they got. So I'm perfectly fine with the schedule. Uh, it's not ideal early in the season, but you know you need places to race during the cold winter months, and IndyCar doesn't have enough. But I'm perfectly fine with that. I thought it was a great, great start to the year, and, and I don't think it's going to affect too much in terms of the drop off of fans. You know, being away for three weeks. No, I I don't think so either, and because of how it's timed out, um. Racing on the opening weekend of the NCAA tournament, not ideal. But again, it's a Sunday afternoon, early afternoon race at Texas. So that should help. And by the, the second round, those games, I mean, I guess you're not expecting as much. It's not like you're competing with, you know, the opening couple days. Right. It's not 16 games. You'll have eight games each day, right? Saturday, Sunday. Some other notes. Congrats to Matthew Brabham winning the 
Indy Lights race. In dramatic fashion. Which, I need to go back and, and rewatch Which that. brings up a point, uh, and I know in, in hearing them talk about, and I watched the first about 30 laps or so of Indy Lights, is they mentioned how the race was longer this year than traditional uh, Peter's St. Petersburg races. And then you have a guy run out of gas on the last last lap. So you don't see that very often, especially when you have no. no pit stops for refueling for Indy Lights. So was he just not managing his fuel? Were they not paying attention to the fuel because they never have to worry about refueling? I don't know. But congratulations to Matthew Brabham. And then also congrats to Miles Rowe after a brutal crash. In the first uh, USF 2000 race of the weekend, he comes back and wins the second race. So big win for him. I mean, one, because he's trying to compete in the full season, but also getting a race win is going to help sell the sponsors and help make up for that crash damage. You got to think he's going to find something now after a win. And congratulations to Josh Green for getting a job as well. That's right. Josh Green picks up a a win in his, what, Indy Pro 2000 debut? Yeah, first race in Indy Pro. So those are some other notes from the weekend as far as what happened on the ladder. And I, I guess any other things that you want to take away from uh, St. Pete? It was just a successful start to the season. Not a lot of crash damage. You know, A lot of competent racing out there. Altogether, a great start. All right. So moving on to some other news. And I don't think this is a surprise at all. It was released as we record this on Thursday. IndyCar... Moving back the uh, engines to the new engines to 2024, the 2.4 liter twin turbo V6 uh, hybrid. Huh? Where did I hear back. that that could be a possibility? Was it um, this on this very podcast yes. last week? Yes, huh. yes, it was. So, and and they made the decision a lot sooner than I thought they would. But well, when the testing timelines got pushed back and. They were already blaming supply chain issues, which makes sense because it has to do with getting parts for the hybrid units. It just seemed like a foregone conclusion that for for everyone's best interest, they'd push it back, maybe use that as leverage to get Toyota to sign on. Right. And then they're on a more equal playing field. And I thought that was key. And we talked about it last week, Caleb, is you know, any prospective third manufacturer, if they were gonna, you know, not join until twenty twenty four, was gonna be a year behind Honda and Chevy. Now everybody will be on equal footing. And so I think that's incentive for Toyota or whoever uh, to jump on board. So I think it's a great move. The question now is, and you know, Marshall Pruitt has done a great job in asking some team owners is, you know, early indications with drivers testing with the added weight that will be part of the hybrid system is that the car is incredibly sluggish. It's pushing 2,000 pounds, and it's just, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a crap wagon, basically, out there. So does IndyCar have its teams bite the bullet and say, okay, 2024, not only will we have a new engine package, we will also have a new chassis. Could that be a possibility? Yeah, it, it, the drivers are clamoring for it. The team owners are kind of like, well, we've, we've kind of reached a, a dead end, basically, is what Mike Cole said. You know, why spend money on an old prod, uh, product when we're not you know, investing in the future. Uh, he said that to Marshall Pruitt, is, is paraphrasing here. but Yeah, and that, he said, you know, for each chassis that Chip Ganassi Racing has, and he says they have 10, is it'll be a quarter of a million dollars to change that chassis enough to outfit it with the new engine spec. 
And so, t- you know, 250 times 10, you're dropping two and a half million dollars just in adjusting the chassis for these engines. And that money goes out the door through after 2024, because it sounds like, you know, at 2025, they would have a chassis at this point. But, you know, why don't you just do it all at once? I know people will, will argue about, you know, price and cost. And look, maybe it, for that, for 2024, it does cost the, uh, you know, the series four or five full-time entries. Maybe some of these multi-car teams can't run as many cars for that year. But I think it's better because, you know what, if you hype up this hybrid engine package and everything it's supposed to do, and you're still lugging around that chassis with that engine spec, it's not going to live up to expectations. And, you know, that could damage your product if you're trying to hype this thing up and then it just slower speeds and, and all that because this, this chassis is going to be so damn heavy. Oh, and the other thing is the current chassis qualifies for vintage yeah, racing. It does. Marshall Pruitt pointed that out and I was like, huh, yeah. <laughs> Which is sad is, and sad. It is sad. I mean, you, you got to eventually move forward. It seems like just yesterday I, I was at the announcement for the like the new car and all that. Yeah. Back in, wow. I mean, I guess that would have been 2012. Like and, I went to that presentation. I mean, this thing has been through it all from, from Dan Weldon testing it to, to losing Dan to, you know, aero kits and the, the excitement or lack thereof that was that to, uh, you know, changes to, you know, the cell, safety the new cell, aero kit. to the aero, yeah, the, the universal aero kit to the aero screen to, to all like it's. You forgot it's, the advanced frontal protection. That's right. The, the <laughs> stick. That's uh, put up, but this thing has been through a lot, but unfortunately it's, it's time for it to be retired. Like, you know, there's, there's never a good time. You know, they always say, you know, there's never a good time to do this or, or that, but, but eventually you just got to bite the bullet and do it. And I think IndyCar needs to do that. And I think, you know what, if you're transparent with your team saying, this is why we need to do this now. And it's, it's for the product and it's for the fans. And, you know, it's stupid to just spend all this money for one year and all that the teams are going to be receptive and some of the smaller teams that, that, that can't make it happen for 2024, then, you know, maybe you sit out a year and prep for 2025. But I think in the, the long term and the short term for 2024 and beyond, I, I think you have to do it all at once. Yes. And, you know, like you said, you're just getting to that point where you have to invest in the future because current product shouldn't be around much longer. And why, why delay? Right. And, and, you know, interesting, you know, tweet that we saw today from Will Buxton talking about this car. And he says, you know, near universal agreement among drivers is the the handling and the sluggishness of this car with the aero screen is so much that they would prefer a halo at this point over the aero screen. Now, I don't know how many drivers is near universal, but Will Buxton is a reputable motorsports journalist i mean he's not just pulling this out of thin air so the fact that the drivers would prefer a halo and give up that safety and then the halo is safe but the aero screen gives you that extra protection i don't know if we have jimmy johnson in the series if we only have a halo i don't know if the, if we have 26 full-time cars if you know we we only have a halo but that's how much the aero screen has affected that car and its ability to drive. And we're going to then put over a hundred pounds of of engine and, and curs and all that exciting stuff in this car. 
and then expect it to still be as nimble and agile and racy as we have now, I mean, I think it's going to be next to impossible. Yeah, glad you brought up Will Buxton because he had to kind of clarify on social media over the weekend that he was attending the IndyCar race that was in St. Petersburg, Florida. Not not St. Petersburg, Petersburg, Russia? Russia. Really? Yes. Because that's where the Russian Grand Prix is supposed to be this year. Uh, Or starting next next year. Next year, yeah. Which which, is not happening. Yeah, ever. (laughs) No. But uh, yeah, that's it's pretty crazy. (laughs) I saw another tweet from someone down in Australia. She was like, you know, good job F1 on canceling the Russian Grand Prix. Now, if only IndyCar could do the same this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Yeah, not the same, people. Not the same. All right. Motorsports uh, Global Fan Survey for IndyCar. The findings are in. Did you take the survey? I did take the survey. I I was one of the, what, 53,000 or somebody? Yeah, 53,579. Yeah, without us, that's... 53,577. So we were integral. Good math. So some of the (laughs) findings from this. Favorite driver, Roman Grosjean. I'd say I'm surprised, but I guess the drive to survive aspect and element is probably why. Favorite team, Team Penske. I guess I'm also a little surprised at that. Really? What would you have gone with? Andretti? Andretti or Ganassi or McLaren. I, I, I guess I wouldn't have been surprised to see McLaren up there. Uh, 68% of fans watch 10 or more races a year. Female fans, 10% more likely to attend races. Um, some of the other findings on this Pato Award was second favorite driver, favorite among female fans, uh, second place for team, tie between Andretti and Aero McLaren SP, and... Uh, McLaren most popular among 16 to 34 most popular in Europe Penske most popular in America favorite race Indy huh. 500 yeah um, others on the list Long Beach Road America Laguna Seca and St. Pete you know what's interesting about that top five there's only one oval yeah and how many people are we need more ovals we need more ovals we need more ovals only one of the top five races you know per these voters is an oval and it's the oval, the big one. Yes. And you know, another thing I found interesting with this survey. So when they said the question was like, you know, list five sponsors you associate the most with IndyCar. Firestone, Honda, NTT, Verizon, which one is missing? Chevy. Yes. DHL was the, the fifth one as far as, the top five most recognized sponsor brands. Well, I will say Honda is more active in terms of title sponsorship. You know, obviously with Chevy, it's only the the Detroit uh-huh. race that they're in, kind of involved in. So I would say, and Honda activation wise, there's a lot more Honda commercials I find than Chevy commercials during IndyCar races. So I can kind of understand that in terms of activation, Honda is much more active. So those are some of the results on the survey. A look at uh, a schedule with a 16-race season. You'd have the Indy 500, Long Beach, Road America, Laguna Seca, St. Pete, Texas, Coda, IMS Road Course, Watkins Glen, Mid-Ohio, Pocono, Toronto, Phoenix, Detroit, Gateway, and Barber. That's what uh, the, the survey survey says. No Pocono on there? or was Yeah, Pocono? no, Pocono okay. was on there. It was. I, yeah, I'd like to see Pocono come back. Um, Phoenix, they tried. And nobody went. So correct, unfortunately. But yeah, that was just kind of how that that one played out. 
Um, yeah, so that's a look at the survey. And the other thing, fans were actually more in favor of double points for the 500. That's Which the one that shocked me. Both of us kind of dry heaved on that one. But, you know, a key thing that jumped out to me in terms of demographics is I think that 18 to 35 demographic, and I read this somewhere, whatever it was for IndyCar was higher than the most recent uh, survey similar that was done on the NASCAR side. They actually have more of their fans surveyed that fit that demographic, and that always seems to be that crucial demographic, right? So, you know, for everything that we say that IndyCar isn't doing enough to target the younger generation of fans, maybe they're doing a better job of it than... NASCAR at this point. 37.5% of the survey respondents were under 35 years old. In North America, 47% were 45 and older. So you have a younger fan base outside North America. And that also, let's be honest, could be the fact that it's technology and younger demographics Uh tend to know how to do that more than 50, 60, 70 year olds. So maybe that's a little skewed because of that. So the fan base in North America is older. Not that that's a surprise, but outside of North America, it's gotten a lot younger. And again, I think Netflix strive to survive. I think that's the key thing. That's not all of it, but I think it's a lot of people getting familiar with that and then following Grosjean and then, oh, he's racing IndyCar. I'll check that out. And then those people are are getting into IndyCar. And I don't think you don't over underestimate the inability of people to differentiate between formula one and indycar if they're watching drive to survive and then they turn on the tv and an indycar race is on some people can't tell the difference i would say most at least who took the survey yes took in the survey i'm talking about people like casual fans we're talking about oh yeah when we talk about impact of drive to survive on indycar I think you're getting the naivete of people, some you know, not a lot, but some that think they're the same thing. Yes. Eighty percent in the survey also follow Formula One. More than ninety percent among younger male fans in Europe and South Central America. Again, not a surprise. And a and a high amount of, of people that took the survey that that are into gaming and into racing, um, which, you know, hopefully is a good sign for the IndyCar game that's coming out next year. And hopefully, you know, that's a case where if, if you want it to be a thing and every, you know, probably, you know, one or two year thing, what does NASCAR heat come out? I don't think it's every year anymore, but maybe every couple of years. But if you want that to be a, a an annual thing or a biannual thing, then that thing needs to have good sales and not let it be a one and done thing. And this IndyCar game, I think that will be a key metric on how sales go and what to expect. And that comes out, what, next year? Next year. I think May of 2023 is what they've said. Yeah, that sounds correct. So that wraps up uh, some of the results on the survey. I mean, they posted them online. They've emailed them to me since I took it. Me too. I got it. You can find them all over the place if you want to get into the real nitty gritty details with the survey. But overall, I think some surprising results, some not so surprising. And here we are. It's uh, a, a good barometer for IndyCar moving forward on what's working, what's not. And, you know, it's not all everything, right? I mean, this is not the right. Boston Consulting yeah. Group. <laughs> well, but at, it's a starting point. Yeah, and at the very least, hopefully IndyCar uses these numbers, these metrics, to then make some decisions and come up with some ideas that cater towards what those results came up with. And I think that's the key, is how does IndyCar utilize these results? 
All right. Well, we'd love for you to interact with us. You can find us at NewTrackRecordPodcast.com. While you're there, sign up for the email list. Subscribe for free on that. You'll get an email and never miss an episode. You can also find us on social media. IndyCar Podcast is the handle on Twitter. On Facebook, like us. Just search for New Track Record. You can email us, NewTrackRecordPodcast at gmail.com. And... Follow us for free on your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts. If you follow us on there, do us a favor. Give us a five-star rating if you're really nice. Write a review. You can also follow us for free on Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, Justin, plenty to discuss in the mailbag because, well, race weekend. That's just just how it works. So we start into it and... uh, Already, the the survey results and Daguerre on Twitter says, "Why on earth do, do the fans want to award eighty five hundred with double points?" <laughs> that was the only real. That was the biggest the, surprise. Yeah, the the only w really WGF moment I had in reading the results. All right, you posted a poll. Which uh, St. Pete qualifying result surprised you the most? Forty six percent said award P sixteen. McLaughlin P one got forty percent. Nine percent for VK and P four. And then Jimmy Johnson P twenty six got five percent of the vote. So should probably have put um, Dalton Kellett on that as yes. well. But you know, only four spots. I can only really do so much. Yes. In fact, P Gaynor fourteen said Kellett P fourteen. Uh, Poet Shevchenko said, "Hopefully, the off season was what VK needed to regain his mojo. Just keep him away from bikes." Yeah. Yeah. What a crazy incident that was last year. Daniel SEM two thousand four. McLaughlin is surprising, but so is Pato. Spam wasn't great on street circuits last year, but they weren't bad. Yeah, I, I think that was shocking. Zach C8771. I did expect more out of Pato, but it's race one. Bauer Racing, nobody is going for option four. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that is true. Pretty much. Yep. Okay. Uh, IndyCar posted a, a tweet on a Jimmy Johnson spin, and we got... Uh, you, you, you capture it with a gif just say, say come on man well and, you know he he spun what in practice one and spun in yes. practice two or did he spin and qualify i can't remember but you know and and i think it was townsend bell that mentioned that like eventually you got to clean this stuff up yeah right i mean it's it's pretty much like come on man like at this point and the fact that he's out qualified by tatiana calderon indicative of you know where Jimmy's at or not at. And the fact that they made a point at the end of the race that Jimmy had was still on the lead lap was, I guess, progress. But, um, yeah, it was, it was, a. we didn't see the, at least through one race, the noticeable improvement that a lot of people expected. All right. Well, a lot of comments on this. Nick J. Fletcher. Can we petition points bet to throw up a over under Jimmy Johnson spins runoffs bet? For each race this season. I mean, if it's two and, <laughs> two and, a, half, and a half, I'm taking the over. Yes. Every time. Correct. Uh, N.K. Harden, thoughts and prayers for Caleb Hatch as he's going to have a long <laughs> season trying to defend Jimmy's performance. Best of luck. Very funny. And then when we were going yeah. back and forth about this, you said, uh, I want to see him on the ovals, is what you said. <laughs> so kicking that can down the alley, but the alley I, reaches a dead end pretty <laughs> darn soon. <laughs> it does. I, I can't defend his qualified performance. I'll be honest. I, I mean, I really can't. I can't defend it in the race. I thought he was actually doing a decent job running mid pack and then his, you know, his tires fell off and then there's a train of cars behind him that passed him. And then 
at the end, he just kind of he slipped after that. He wasn't competitive. Part of that's just not getting the strategy right. Yeah, but, but you know he, he didn't spin. He did. I was gonna say he didn't spin or go off track or anything in the in the race that I remember that was shown. So you know, I guess that's progress for Jimmy Johnson. Uh, this is from Scuba Steve eighty five. So, what critical point in the race does Jimmy spin and stall the car and bring out a yellow? Hey, didn't happen. Although um, we could have used a yellow, some drivers could have very yeah, much used a, a yellow. A lot of drivers. Yes. Uh, this is from NK Harden. Four minutes into the pre race, and they mentioned. And show the Astor Cup. Did you guys feel a cold chill? <laughs> uh, I did not watch the pre-race. I'll be fully I, I watched the pre-race and I did see the Astor Cup. I uh, have have no no uh, no interest in the pre-race shows. Uh, this is a bit of news they dropped in, but Ed Carpenter going to race at Texas. So we have an, another entry there. A, cu- a couple tidbits that Townsend Bell two in random practice that I mentioned to you. And I think it was practice one. And I don't think he misspoke. I rewound it and listened to it a couple of times. Cause I was like, wait, what did he just say? But he said that McLaren had already offered Kyle Kirkwood, a 2023 spot at McLaren in the third car, in the third car, conceivably, uh, or maybe the second could be Felix Rosenquist is going, or maybe even, you know, Pato Award, who knows, um, and had said no. I mean, which affirms our belief that he's going to be at Andretti next year. But the fact that I would say Colton Herta will be with IndyCar through 2023, even if he goes F1 in 2024, who does he replace? But I, I thought that was just kind of an interesting uh, maybe throwaway by Townsend Bell that made me perk up. Yeah, that was interesting and you know i guess i'm not entirely surprised that Ed is racing at texas but i mean here we are a couple comments on that vicky lynn 26 this one made me laugh and then it will be gateway in iowa he needs to step away from the car i don't uh, mind him being a third car that my problem was splitting that second car so yeah, same if he wants to do that that means they have sponsorship and that's fine with me uh jl cook 99 says if you want to win indy you have to run texas um, I don't know. I I mean, it's a good warm up, but I I don't necessarily know how I ask Elio Castroneves last about year that. how that went. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Perfect response. All right, rate the race time. I think we're both in agreement. Yeah, seven? I, I, yeah, I had a seven. Um, you mentioned your your main point of contention is a, a pa- green pass for the lead. Yeah, we no on track pass for the lead. Right. Um. I admittedly, the middle part of the race, um, my mind wandered and I was on my phone a lot and then it got kind of exciting towards the end. But, you know, if we're racing, if we're rating the race, not the event, it's a seven. If we're rating the event, it's going to be higher. But oh, we're yeah. rating the race. And I had it as seven. Yeah, I, I had a seven as well. I mean, I thought it was solid. It was not like a memorable race outside of McLaughlin, you know, getting his first career win. But outside of that, there wasn't like a whole lot that yeah. is going to stand out that you're going to remember at the end of the season. It was a, a solid race. It wasn't a stinker. It wasn't the best St. Pete race we've ever seen. It was in the meaty part of the curve, and I'm fine with it. I, I was kind of surprised a lot of people had it rated higher. Yeah, a lot of responses here. R. Cole says 8.5. It was a good race with enough passing and different pit strategies to make it interesting to the end. Poet Shevchenko, I was at the track, so I have a bias saying eight. First and second were close. Most of the race, although one didn't pass the other, 
From second back, it was good racing. With Calderon and Johnson on track, I've seen other drivers use them as a pick to make a pass more than a couple times. <laughs> That's what uh, they're there for. Yes. DC Soda. I think I go with a nine. Wow. Uh, extremely clean race for the first of the season and a good battle toward the end on a street circuit is always a bonus. Feel really good for McLaughlin, too. You know, it was clean. I it will was. say that. Um, NK Harden gave it an eight out of ten. Nick J. Fletcher, race eight. D. Francesco's final five laps, zero. D. Francesco's final five laps of a Netflix documentary were being filmed, ten. <laughs> <laughs> Thought that was great. <laughs> According to Stitch, eight, and the crowd deserves a ten. Sure. I am analog, said, loved it, 9.5 out of 10, but a huge, huge fan of McLaughlin, loved it, he looks like he's found that groove he had in V8, uh, talking about supercars, uh, you said 3.5, not enough championship points updates on broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> tongue in cheek, folks, tongue in cheek. For sure. Uh, according to Stitch said, you realize some idiot in marketing is going to see this. Think you're serious? All pre 500 championship <laughs> updates are now officially your fault. <laughs> I um, thought that blame. was great. Uh, Bill Hessa says nine great race, one yellow. Outcome was up for grabs most of the race. Happy for McLaughlin, but think Polo just reminded everyone he's the championship favorite. Uh, thought broadcast was good too. Yeah, the broadcast was solid. I, I I don't really have any complaints. I know people were complaining about the lack of the post race, but yeah. it's network TV. I yeah. I don't know if they throw something up on Peacock. And just say that, you know, join us on Peacock for more post-race coverage. That's fine. Yeah. It, it covers that base. And I probably wouldn't tune in. I got to be honest. I, I might flip it on. But, I mean, for the people who are already watching Peacock, they'll just stay locked in. Definitely. Uh, uh, I, I thought uh, James Hinchcliffe was good in his first week. I, I felt like NBC used him the way he should be used as a give us insight of a current driver. Because I think with every passing year, Towns and Bell is further and further away from that. Mm-hmm. So I, I like James Hinchcliffe. They moved him around the track a couple, a couple of times. I thought he meshed well uh, in the booth with the other guys. So I thought it was a good first event for Hinchcliffe. Hopefully they continue to utilize him in that way. Deguerra says, I'd go with an eight. Plenty of action, but a bit more unexpected drama would be needed uh, for a higher rating. Uh, Joseph underscore Bears, 7.5. Good race. Just at the end. Just felt like we knew the 10 wasn't going to be able to get around the 3. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, Zach C8771. There wasn't much excitement overall, but I'll give it a 7.5 because I love the track, and it's so good to have open-wheel racing back. The end had a little intrigue, too. Scheduling is dumb, though. The rhythm is messed up until May. Yes, I would agree with that. It is, but I don't really mind it. And then he, he followed that up with, hopefully in the future, if IndyCar wants to race St. Pete so early, which they will, uh, they can get another race the week after to keep momentum up, preferably another oval. Could be a great fit for Homestead Miami in early March. Yes, and I th- I would think that's kind of the plan, the, the rumor for now, but you know, that was the plan with Phoenix and did it a couple of times it didn't work out. So look, adding Homestead is one thing, but it better draw if you want it as a long-term answer early in the season for another race. Uh, Mike Jarrett, 33, give it an 8, Miss PT's input. <laughs> Uh, in Captain 185, 7 out of 10. Uh, let's see. Is there any other, any other rate the race? Uh, uh, Jamin T14 gave it an 8. Uh, Daniel SEM 2004, a 7. Uh, pit strategy kept it interesting, but the lack of on track passing, especially for the lead, made it another street race that we all hate to watch. Yeah, I, I guess that's kind of re- relatable. I mean, me. hate to watch is strong, but 
yeah, I, you know, when it comes down to it, there was no green, there was no passing for the lead on track. Uh, stealth, 10-14, 6 out of 10. Passing is too difficult at St. Pete, really only two opportunities. Like most street courses, you know, you're only going to have a couple of opportunities to pass and, you know, some road courses as well. All right, so that's a, that's a look at uh, Rate the Race. I'm I Hopefully I got everyone's in there. A lot of responses there. Um, finishing result that surprised you the most. 40% said Newgarden P16, 31% McLaughlin P1, 26% Rossi P20, 3% said Lungard P11. Uh, Nick J. Fletcher says Newgarden is obviously out of the championship hunt with a finish <laughs> like that. Take it, take the bait, take it. Nope. <laughs> nope. Not going to do it. Uh, Jamin T14, both Rossi and Newgarden have to hope this was an outlier or it's going to be a long year. Well, the strategy needs to be better. I mean, yeah. you're 0 for 1 on strategy, which means you don't want to be 0 for 2 come Texas. Fit J1983, strategy killed Newgarden and Rossi. Three-stop strategy didn't work because of the caution and the power of uh, overcut massive. It's well worth gamble that often works out. Yeah, I was shocked we didn't have another caution. After the Malukas crash, to be honest. Right. I thought, you know, cautions breed cautions. And I thought late in the race, the final 15, 20 laps, somebody's going to cook it and go off and stall it. You know, not even just like a big crash. Something's going to happen where somebody's pushing a bit too much and something happens. But credit to the drivers. We didn't have anything. It was a clean race. Daniel SEM 2004. Rossi struggles are a head scratcher. Uh, that was just strategy. I- I don't understand why they didn't pit him and left bring him Rob out. Edwards back. It's obviously not working <laughs> with the new guy up top. Brian Barnhart. Yes. Give me four good ones. <laughs> That's right. I, I tweeted that. <laughs> you did that. It made me laugh. <laughs> and then 500 Indy 1911 that says honorable mention to Sato P10. Yeah. How about the debut for Sato after everything that happened over the course of the week? You know, getting run into yeah, from behind Sato by Grosjean. Got Sato'd. <laughs> yeah. And Grosjean was not happy, man. He, uh, that, I don't know if he's mad I, at himself or that was very bizarre that he just kind of. But you know what was fascinating it. with that is, and we kind of talked about it before, before uh, when that happened. Is Grosjean was mad because everybody was slowing up and there was no like flag to warn him, hey, people are slowing up. But that's just how it works at St. Pete. I think the problem is I don't know why there's a different timing line for qualifying that there is for the race. Like, just keep the start-finish line at the same place for the entire weekend. Because at, at the very least, you're not adding into a blind corner when people are slowing up to try to start their laps uh, like you would if you had the start-finish at the start-finish. So I don't really... I mean, it's Grosjean's fault, but I understand the stupidity that is the, the where the start-finish line is for qualifying. I mean, I get why they have it before so you can continue on another lap and then or be able to pit in like i get it but i understand yeah, but it does get confusing yeah so yeah I, I just feel it doesn't work when you have a blind blind corner like that and everybody's just stacking up on each other all right well that's a look at the mailbag as always send us your tweets emails facebook messages etc in terms of uh you want to interact with us on the podcast okay time for news and notes and we start off with uh, a rookie test at texas plus a lot of other guys testing there grosjean was fastest in the noto kirkwood fastest overall again a disclaimer testing times do not matter 
All right. With that said, Loonguard, Ilot also participating in the test. Uh, let's see. Who else am I forgetting? Um, Devlin DeFrancesco, uh, David Malukas, and then a, a shakedown by J.R. Hildebrand before Kirkwood went out on track. If that says Anything? all you need to know on who will be the oval driver for the uh, Tatiana Calderon, you know, car. Yeah, which I'm kind of surprised that has car. not yet been announced. I am as well. We're, you know, a little over two weeks away from racing there. Um, but you know, I think it was Kirkwood that had the comment. Somebody asked him if it was still one lane and he basically said, I went up into the PBJ and it was ice. And so I came back down. So indicative of what to expect yeah. at Texas. Is this the last race at Texas for IndyCar? I feel like it is. I do too. The swan song. It's unfortunate, but it's just, it's the it's, track is not set up for the car. No, it's catering to NASCAR and I'm not saying I blame Texas. They got to do what's best for their business. And to them, that's catering to NASCAR, which is what they're doing. Unfortunately, the indie product has suffered, and I feel like we're going to see it for the last time and for a while at Texas coming up this year. And this bit of news, Justin, as we record at Carpenter Racing, Ed will race all the oval events <laughs> in the number 33. His birthday is March 3rd, so today's his birthday. Okay. Happy birthday, Ed. Three IndyCar wins, three Indy 500 poles. Oh, hey. And they said the goal is to be first in the field of 33 after 500 miles. So they went with the number 33 for all the ovals starting March 20th at Texas Motor Speedway. 27-car field. Most entrance for an IndyCar Texas race since 2011. They had 30. And that race, uh, if I'm not mistaken... Okay, no, that was I think a year later was was broadcast on network TV on Saturday night. But well, that that twenty seven entry field that courtesy of Nathan Brown of the Indy Star. Well, and the thirty race or thirty car field was the year before the new chassis, so that usually yes. happens, right? There's a lot of tubs out there. Everybody's trying to use them. That is correct. So a little bit of news there. Continuing on with uh, IndyCar team news, um, Oliver Askew. Reserve driver for we're gonna start doing that Andretti in the and IndyCar. We're gonna start having reserve drivers <laughs> yes. like Formula One. I mean, he's with their Formula E team. This is not a surprise. They're just trying to make it so they have first rights to him to to fill in for anyone. I get it. Yeah. Joseph Newgarden. This from Jenna Fryer, but Joseph Newgarden um, signed an extension during the 2021 season. Penske doesn't really talk about uh, IndyCar contracts publicly, as she mentioned. But so again, not a surprise, but. That's where that stands. Some notes on McLaren. Third car on schedule for next season, according to Jenna Fryer. Um, Whether it appears this season depends on who the driver will be. Again, they're running the third car with Montoya for both May races, but that is not, at least I don't think that's the projected driver. I'd agree. Um, Award in the mix for some FP1s this year in F1. I think what's going to happen is Pato Award and Daniel Ricardo are just going to swap. Yeah, but Ricardo <laughs> has a longer-term contract. I know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, a current IndyCar driver also under consideration. Brown did not say who. Wild guess. Colton Herta. Um, Alexander Rossi. Also, Award can't move to F1 with McLaren for some time. Leno has a long-term contract. Daniel has a couple other years. So that's that. Mark Miles also says IndyCar exploring racing in Mexico, and this from Trackside Online, 
Uh, Mark Miles says that IndyCar's international TV rights fees are up 40% from last year to this year. Wow. Pretty darn good. Very impressive. So that's, uh, that's saying something. That's the money in the bank. More money, more stability. More money, more problems? <laughs> well, yeah, that along too, but uh, also solves a lot of problems too, let's be honest. That is true, and IndyCar getting more money will solve more problems. All right, other notes on some drivers. Simona D. Silvestro is going to pursue Olympic uh, bobsled. Really? I didn't see that. Yeah, motorsport with the article there. Okay. Um, let's see, Ernie Francis Jr. on the Dale Jr. download. Also, Al Unser Jr. was on there recently, too, so getting some, some coverage there. Uh, David Lane had a video. I will admit I didn't see it, but I've seen social media. I get it. People are one way or the other with David Lane, but just reporting what he got out of Mario Andretti. One confirmed Renault is the engine supplier in the F1 venture, if that does happen. Also, Mario and Colton Herta, when it was almost done, you know the deal with Sauber, he spent a week in their wind tunnel. Third day, he was faster than Raikkonen and Giovinazzi. Had been in the simulator. Nice. Pretty impressive. And then a lot of notes from Adam Stern on Andretti and F1. Uh, Michael Andretti says he's trying to line up an American team principal for his prospective F1 team. Lost out on them because didn't have the go-ahead from the FIA. Otmar, uh, and I can't even say his <laughs> I know Safnauer, yeah. uh, who's with now with Alpine, was that was the guy he was going after. Also, helped, uh, Michael Andretti helping to learn the fate of his prospective F1 team in the next week. So yeah, that's I mean, pretty soon. I mean, everything we're hearing is that, you know, every, everything's good to go. We're just waiting FIA approval. That's the biggest thing. Other than having money is... Will the FIA allow you in? So I feel like this is going to be drug out a little bit longer than what Andretti hopes. The FIA never makes quick decisions. And then uh, also from Adam Stern, F1 CEO Stefano Domenicali told SBJ last summer the series would welcome a brand like Andretti to the grid. That was when Michael Andretti was trying to acquire one of the pre-existing 10 teams in Alfa Romeo. F1 has not had 11 teams since the 2016 season. They're trying to reach out to Toto Wolf. Can't get calls returned. I mean, they're just, <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm, I don't know how confident I feel in this game no, done, which is a, unfortunate. But. It's a very exclusive club. Yes. And to join that club, even if you have a crap ton of money, doesn't mean you're going to be welcomed with open arms. That is correct. All right. A note on Indy 500 ticket sales. Nathan Brown of the Indy Star saying ticket sales continue to be very robust, according to Mark Miles and Doug Bowles. Could we have a sellout, potentially? Well over 300,000 fans expected. And that came out during the uh, honoring of uh, Elio Castroneves as they unveiled his face on the Borg Warner Trophy. Looks a lot like his other three. It does, yeah. And then on one uh, sad note, before we move on, rest in peace to... Danny Angaius, the Flying Hawaiian. Saw that and uh, really brought me down. The Flying Hawaiian, man. Loved Angaius. All right, Justin. Uh, that wraps up news and notes. Time for your split era driver of the week. All right, Caleb. We're going to 1999 Indy Racing League, and we're going to take a look at Brant Motorsports and Andy Mickner. I actually think I've heard of him. Dang only be- it. Only because... 
Like, I think this has, like, come up before. <laughs> Andy Mickner, a former driver in Indy Racing League. You can look him up on Wikipedia. He was He's an Ann Arbor, Michigan native, and you look at his career over the course of three seasons in the IRL. So started off with Chitwood Motorsports in 98, and that was his top 10 finish at Indy. He finished eighth in 1998, uh, and then continued to race in 1998 for Riley and Scott Cars, which sounds like a place that... Uh, you know, at the corner of your... your <laughs> no, that was a, like a chassis manufacturer, Yeah, right? but it was a team. Riley and Scott Cars was the team. Oh, interesting. With a Riley and Scott chassis <laughs> in 98. And actually had a top 10 in Atlanta that year. And then we went to 1999 is where I picked him from initially with Brandt Motorsports and raced uh, two races uh, that year. Did not qualify for the 500 that year, but uh, appeared at... Walt Disney World, of course, and Phoenix that year. And then near 2000 for Logan Racing. And they did not even qualify. They they withdrew both from Laguna Seca and Indy. And there's so little known about Logan Racing that on Wikipedia, it doesn't even have their chassis and engine listed. <laughs> so it could be a, a fact where Logan Racing couldn't even secure a car for those events. I don't even know. And then the 99-9500 reading on the, the bump day kind of snippet on the Wikipedia page. Uh, he spun on his first qualifying attempt, did not make any contact, waved off his second attempt after being too slow. Rain was entering the area, threatened to wash out the rest of the day. And then Mike Groff bumped his way into the field and found himself on the bubble. You know, interesting, you know, Andy Mickner uh, came from the USAC ranks. And we talk so much and, and people, you know, oh, that why isn't IndyCar kind of, you know, more catering to to those, you know, entities and stuff in the present day. But uh, was actually he is the current record holder of the world's fastest sprint car race at a USAC event in Phoenix in 1996. He twice finished runners up to Tony Stewart in USAC competition and has 19 USAC wins. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, right? Um, he did pass his rookie orientation program in the Indy 596, but elected to not qualify and race trucks in 96 and 97. This is where it kind of gets interesting. Um, he returned to the IndyCar Series in 98 with Konica Cyan Racing and captured his career best finish of eighth place in his first race was the 500. He then signed with the factory team Riley and Scott Reebok. I didn't know Reebok was part of this team. Yeah, I, I actually remember that. Riley and Scott Reebok and led the closing laps of the 1998 Texas Longhorn 500, but then had an engine failure. Brutal. Right? <laughs> um, at MIS in 98, it was announced he signed a three-year contract to drive in the Bush Series, then Bush Series, but he ultimately suffered career-ending injuries in 98 while testing at Homestead for at a Bush Series test uh, and tried to qualify for the 99 500 for bird racing, but failed to make the field due to rain, like you mentioned. Um, and then with the Logan Racing uh, entry in two races in 2000, but did not appear in any race. So Andy Mickner, I think a storied, you know, interesting career over the course of, uh, of USAC and the IRL and, uh, you know, Craftsman Truck Series. All right, that's our split era driver of the week. Time now for the tweet of the week, and it's pretty simple. Scott McLaughlin tweeted on Monday morning after the race, Sorehead. 
<laughs> think he had some fun celebrating that race win. Yeah, it's he, he, uh, there was a, a lot of stuff going on in that uh, victory lane celebration for sure. Absolutely. All right. Well, for Justin Kinney, I am Caleb Hatch. Thanks for joining us on another edition of New Track Record. We'll be back next week to discuss the latest news in IndyCar as we have this odd gap between races as we <laughs> prepare for Texas coming up in a couple of weeks. Podcasts by Federated Media.